I have a theory uh, that doesn't necessarily have any theological backing or biblical standing, per se, uh, but I believe that God has created a creature or an animal within this world that sole purpose is to illustrate and show complete joy and unconditional love in our life, and that animal is the dog. <laughs> in the... In the dog versus cat debate, I firmly stand in the side of dog, and I will, I will die on that hill, okay? I know that it's a constant battle, but I, I love dogs. In fact, I'm probably overly obsessed with dogs. I send my wife uh, just constant pictures of puppy dogs all the time. Um, I just absolutely adore dogs. I grew up with dogs. I grew up with golden retrievers as a kid. Uh, and so I always had kind of these uh, fun dogs in my life. And my wife grew up with a poodle. I'm not sure if that's a dog or not, uh, but we can debate that later. Um, it was something for sure. And she kind of understood the premise of what a dog was. Uh, but, but I grew up with dogs. I love dogs. And so about three years ago, when me and my wife had just had our first year in marriage, we decided to adopt a dog. Like we wanted to bring a dog into our family. We wanted to be able to have this joy, this unconditional love placed within our life. And so we jumped onto petfinder.com to find a dog that would kind of fit our family. We had a list of criteria. We wanted to make sure that they were playful and loving and caring and good with kids and Instagrammable, if that's a criteria that you want to throw in there. We wanted to make sure that we had a dog that we could take pictures of and it would smile back at the camera. And so finally, we landed uh, on petfinder.com on this dog named Tina. It was this golden retriever that we found at the Wilmington Humane Society. See, I used to live in Dayton, Ohio, and Wilmington had this humane society that dogs would be adopted and brought in from the street, and you could go out to them. And so we drove about an hour out to, uh, through cornfields of Ohio to get to Wilmington Humane Society to adopt Tina. And when we got there, uh, we approached the woman at the front desk, and we began to kind of talk with her about adopting Tina, and she says, hey, unfortunately, uh, Tina was adopted this morning. And so we, our hearts just sank into our chest, but she said, fortunately, we have another dog named Django. And Django did not seem to meet the same criteria that we had set beforehand. Django was this Australian shepherd chow mix that was extremely dirty. Like you could see the dirt coming off of him. His hair was just all scraggly. He didn't really seem to be that Instagrammable in the moment. And so we just, we didn't really know. And he was brought into this sterile room with us to interact with us so that we could kind of pet him and kind of see if we wanted to be able to bring him home with us. And uh, as we are kind of trying to interact with him, he's just walking around the corners of the room, not even paying any attention to us, but just constantly going after the food that was on the table. So he's just constantly trying to get the food, eat it off the table. There was some like bag of food up there that he was going after. It didn't seem like this was the dog that we were supposed to adopt at all whatsoever, but there was something in my heart in that moment as I interacted with Jen with all his weirdness and his ruddiness, I decided that I wanted him. And to my wife's chagrin, we ended up taking him home. Like in that moment, we're like, okay, she, she's begging me not to, but I'm like, no, I need this dog in my home for whatever reason. There's something wrong with me, I think. I just needed this dog. And so we, we take Django 
uh, we take Django and we're walking out with him to the car. And I remember just being so happy. We paid the down payment and bringing him out to the car. And I remember the woman chasing after us. She, and she's like, hey, just one second. He may have worms, so here's some medication for that. Uh, and so my wife's staring at me, just glaring at me the entire time. But we take Django home nonetheless, and we bring him into our home. And he just had stayed with us over the last three years. And it's amazing to see how this dog that was once without hope I mean, this dog that was found on the side of the road by the sheriff's department in Wilmington, Ohio, uh, is now been brought into a new home. He used to flinch all the time and nip at the UPS man and, and the mailman and just kind of not interact well with others and bark and growl at them. And now he's just this loving, kind dog that just kind of brings us joy sitting in the middle of Seattle. And uh, he is Instagrammable, we found out, because we actually do have an Instagram for him. And this is a shameless plug right here. If you wanna go to, um, if you wanna open up your Instagram, if you happen to have an Instagram, at Django underscore Unchained one, he has almost 4,000 thousand followers. I'm not bragging, I swear. Uh, but but we, he, he actually did end up redeeming himself in that moment. So this dog that was nothing was brought into this home. And unfortunately, because of his master's obsession and problems in life, decided to put an Instagram page and has lifted him up in that way. But this story of rescue, as foolish as it may be, is something that I think resonates in the heart of every single Christian. This story of adoption, the, the, the idea of going from kind of a place of nowhere, sitting within shame, sitting within guilt, sitting within sin, sitting within problems of life, to being placed within a home, being placed within the presence and family of God with Jesus Christ himself, being rescued and adopted into the lineage of who God is, is something that every single Christian can resonate and feel. And over this next few months and throughout this fall, we're going to be going through a series where we're going to be looking at our adoptions as sons and daughters into the home of Jesus Christ himself. We are welcoming you home and who you are as adopted sons and daughters of Christ throughout the book of Ephesians. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Ephesians chapter one. We're going to be looking at Ephesians and we're kicking it off this week and as we go throughout this series. For a moment, I wanna take uh, just a quick look at the geographical uh, context to the book of Ephesians and where it stands today, if we will. Uh, the book, the, uh, the church of Ephesus sits now uh, no longer constructed or redeemed. It's actually now just ruins that have been placed uh, within the uh, Middle East. But it is, uh, the church of Ephesus has a very special place in the heart of God. You'll see in that in Acts chapter 18, the church was started. And it was actually started within a very pagan society. It was started within a society that actually celebrated idols and actually people around the area would make and forge idols around them and then sell them to the people within the city of Ephesus. And Paul comes into the city of Ephesus. He begins to do all these miraculous works and preaches the gospel. And people begin to give up the idols that they had been serving and purchasing to the point where the idol makers actually stage a riot and begin to go after what Paul is doing because of how exponential the church had grown in the city of Ephesus. Then Paul takes his disciple Timothy, 
the same one that he was writing to that we had been going over in the summer in First and Second Timothy. He takes his disciple Timothy and he places him as pastor over the life of the church of Ephesus. In the book of Revelation, we see God himself write a letter to the church of Ephesus, warning them about different things and praising them for the work that they had done. The church of Ephesus is something that is beautiful and good and, and a people that we can resonate well with today as we sit within the society and culture that we live within. And Paul is going to put forward to us an identity that the church of Ephesus should live within and that we can resonate with and learn from today. So we're gonna start in Ephesians chapter one and read this morning. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, in which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things on heaven and in earth. Verse 11, he continues, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ may be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." What a beautiful promise that has been given to us. What a beautiful identity that, that Paul is putting forward to us that we have in Christ. If there was one thing I want us to walk away from this morning, maybe one idea that this text is trying to put forward to us that I would want us to remember as we go throughout our week, it's that those within the family of God rest their identity in who Christ is and what he accomplished. Those within the family of God rest their identity not in what they do, but who Christ is and what he accomplished. And this is important for us. This text is extremely important for us because there are our default in our hearts or the way that we end up going about our lives is not resting our heart and life within the identity of God, but instead it is to find our worth in the physical world around us and the things that we do. See, a lot of times we will find our meaning and worth in our jobs. We'll find our meaning and worth in the financial standing that we have in the world around us and the way that we scale up to other people. Maybe it's from pats on the back from our coworkers or boss. Maybe it's from the way that we are able to just spend time working throughout the week. We can find so much meaning and worth in our jobs. We can find meaning and worth in family in the way that maybe we parent or maybe we grandparent, the way our kids turned out, the way that our kids are today, maybe it is as a son or daughter and the praise that we receive from parents or the way that we have rebelled against them, we can find our meaning and our worth in family. We can also find our meaning and worth in education and our knowledge, our ability, our grades, the way that we are uh, accoladed for the things that we have done in school. 
We also find worth, meaning in worth, in our identity and in religiosity. And the way that we're able to discipline ourselves, the way that we're able to memorize the Bible, even in good things, we try to work our relationship out with God in our own way without resting in the identity of who he is. A pastor uh, and preacher and author in New York, Tim Keller, said it this way. I think it's extremely helpful and resonated well with me. It said this, that our need for worth is so powerful that whatever we base our identity and value on, we essentially deify. We will look to it with all the passion and intensity of worship and devotion, even if we think of ourselves as highly irreligious. So true. So many times we will take these things within our life, though good, though simple, though a part of our life, and we will take them and we will elevate them to a place where they become God in our life. They become the very fabric and foundation of our life and we rest everything that we are upon those things. And eventually when those things fade or fail, we are left hopeless, we are left burnt out, and we are left without a feeling or sense of identity because they walk away. They're not eternal. They can't hold us. They can't hold up to the weight and measure that we have placed upon them. We need something greater. We need a savior. We need someone that is eternal, that can place our entire life upon and can bring us out of the situation that we are in, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And that's what Paul is trying to push us to understand, that there is an identity that we need to place. There is an identity that we need to have in the person and work of Jesus Christ and not what we do and not the things that we have glorified, idolized, or deified. There is a person that we need to place our work or our identity within, and that is Christ himself. And in this text, you will notice that there is a specific rhythm to this text that Paul puts forward to us that we need to understand and know. There are four, what I would call in hymns or in Christ that Paul pushes us to understand and grow in in, and, and learn about and make sure that we are rooting ourselves in. The first one is this, that in Christ we are chosen. That as family of God, within the home of God, we are chosen as children of God. And this is in verses four through six. Look what Paul says here. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, this word predestined is something that if you have been a part of the church historically can become something that is a little bit of a problematic issue. There's so many different viewpoints. There's so many different people that will look at this verb or phrase or different things that have happened within the Bible and begin to ascribe different meanings and definitions to it. And we'll begin to argue about it and we could talk about it all day long. In fact, we could begin to talk about this subject for an entire semester and spend an entire seminary course and still not get to the very root of it all. So I think that there is an importance in us being able to grow and understand in this because we wanna be able to learn how Christ saves us. But for this morning, I just want us to know that Christ has determined your salvation before the beginning of the world. That in this word predestined, all Paul is simply putting forward to us is that God has determined beforehand his saving work, how he was going to carry it out, and he knew that it would happen. 
Uh, there is multiple verses that continue to support this phrase and continue to be pushed throughout all the New Testament that help us understand God's foreknowledge and predestination. In 1 Peter 1.2, 1 Peter 1.20, Acts 2.23, John 6.44, Romans 8.29, and Revelation 13.8 all speak to the beauty of God's work upon our life. Let us not get hung up on one certain word or maybe definition that we have ascribed to this word, but let us see the beautiful work that God has done and is doing in our life. Paul says here that we have been determined beforehand that in God's sovereign understanding and will that we may not understand in this life, he has reached down before a single molecule or atom was created. He knew you and has brought you into adoption as a son or daughter in Christ. He reached down into your world and brought you forward to him in order to be able to save you out of the sin and the depths of depravity that we have been sitting within. He adopted us as, Christ, as, as children of Christ to bring us closer to him. And predestination or this choosing work is good news for us because we are unable to go forward to the throne of Christ without his saving work upon our life. We are unable to approach him without his holy, blameless life being placed upon us, without him reaching down and saving us out of the depths that we are in to come forward to Christ himself. Furthermore, it shows us a savior that knew us by name before anything else was created. And he knew every single flaw, every single insecurity, and every single problem, anxiety, fear, worry, habits, addictions that you had and yet he still died for you. He still came forward and brought you into the family of God to bring you into new life, to be able to have you a part of this family. God's work and bringing you close is something that is beautiful and good and something that we should walk forward in authority in. The question is, why does God do this? This saving work that God comes in and he rescues us from the depths of depravity that we are under. Why does he end up doing this? Paul gives us this answer here. He provides for us this answer by saying that it was all according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. Therefore, God did not save you. God did not bring you out of the sin that you were in. God did not bring you forward to him because you're awesome, right? He, bring, he brought you forward because he's awesome. He brought you forward because of his goodwill, because of his grace. It wasn't because of your knowledge or ability. It wasn't because you were able to do a lot of really, really great things. It wasn't because you were really, really smart or earned a lot of really, really great grades in school or you had some great family lineage or line. He brought you forward in grace and mercy because he's good. And we may not fully understand it, but he has saved us to bring about a glory in him that is greater than anything we've ever known. God brings us forward. God saves us to show to the entire universe that a just and mighty God would save a sinner like you and like me. And that he is good, holy, and right and shows mercy to sinners in this world. God brings us forward, he shows us love that before the foundation of the world, he knows us to bring about the glorious grace and we live within this adoption. We live with this identity in mind. 
And in this work, as he begins to save us, as he brings us forward, as he does these things, uh, we see that there is redemption that takes place in the heart of every believer, in the heart of every person that is brought forward. There is a redemption that begins to grow in their life, and we see a forgiveness that takes place, a forgiveness and grace and mercy that is placed upon every believer as well. In Christ, we are also forgiven. Not only are we chosen, but we're also forgiven. Look at what Paul says as he continues. He says that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In order for there to be forgiveness, in order for there to be redemption, there has to be a story of falling. There has to be a story of some need to be redeemed, some sort of darkness that we have succumbed ourselves into. There has to be something that we were rescued out of. See, every single one of us have walked away from Christ. All within our life had his commandments placed at our feet, and yet we rejected him. We said, I want my own way. I wanna be able to do life how I wanna be able to do it. I wanna walk forward in the plans and ideals and things that I wanna be able to do. I wanna live in my feelings, not necessarily in what God has placed forward. I wanna be able to do what I wanna do. And we rejected his laws. We walked away from him forever and we began to proceed in our own way. And yet God chased after us, brought us forward and in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ himself, brought us into forgiveness of our sins. He over overlooked the sins and things that we did against him, the offenses that we had done, and he has now placed his salvation upon our life. So that now, when God looks down upon you, Christian, he does not see the sin and offenses that you once walked in. He sees the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. He sees what he has accomplished, what he has done, not necessarily your past not necessarily the things that you have done against him. And we walk in this. I think sometimes we can get caught up in it, and maybe sometimes we hear this story, we hear this redemption, we hear this idea of forgiveness and love, and we say, yeah, that's really, really great for my neighbor, or that's really, really great for that person that's kind of on the peripheral of my life, maybe a peer that we see and that we know, that's really, really awesome and great for them, but if God really knew me, and if he really knew my heart, if he knew what I had done, if he knew my past, if he knew what I thought in the secret recesses of my heart, he would never truly love me. And the beautiful truth of this gospel, the beautiful truth of God's forgiving work is that no matter what you have done, no matter where you have been, no matter what habits or addictions you have placed yourself within, he forgives and loves you. I mean, he cares for you. And that if you are feeling as if you are outside the good grace of God, I'm, I'm here to tell you this morning that there is no one that is too far from the forgiving grace and mercy and redemption of Jesus Christ himself. This is a truth that we live in, that we are defined by, that we know. And also look further as he goes on. There is a word here that is really beautiful. He says that in this forgiveness, it is lavished upon us. It is lavished upon us. I love this word for two different reasons. Uh, a few weeks ago, the first reason is the, that a few weeks ago, I actually spoke at middle school camp. And I had the opportunity of being able to speak to the middle schoolers as they went through summer camp, and it was a really great week. And uh, the very first night, I think it was about the first night, I was speaking to the middle school students, and I kind of had my sermon structured out, and I, the last point was that I was going to say that grace has been lavished upon you. And as I said that point, as I put it on the screen and said the word lavish, I remember that I got just a sea of blank stares all around me 
as, a, as just middle school students, we're like, what is this guy thinking? What is this guy saying? I have, what does the word lavish mean? And who uses that in, the, in their dictionary or verbiage? I have no idea, but apparently I did. And so they just completely just blank stares. And I remember later that night as the staff kind of gathered around uh, and we kind of were talking about it, they began to rib me because they were like, oh yeah, Josh, way to use the word lavish to a group of middle school students. A week later, okay, a week later, Jesse gets up and preaches to our high school students. And as he is preaching, he uses the word lavish and I immediately point to the staff and I say, see, he uses it too. And then now today, I can stand forward as well to everyone as well and say, hey, right here in Ephesians, Paul uses it as well. And in him, I have redemption for using it and confusing the middle schoolers. So I'm excited to see it here. And I am pumped that it's actually in this text. I love it. But it's also good news for us. It's great news for us. I think it's fantastic news because it means that God did not just give forgiveness sparingly. He did not begrudgingly forgive us. He did not, we didn't ask for an apology and then he, was, he just kind of said, okay, I will forgive you in kind of a half-hearted way. This word lavish means that he has poured it out on us. That time and time again, he is giving forgiveness down to us. He is giving love to us. He is pouring this grace and mercy onto us every single day. And that is good news for you and for me because I need grace every morning. I need forgiveness every day. I need his mercy on my life every single moment. And he has lavished this down upon us. This is what God has accomplished in the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. His shed blood for us. A lot of times when we look at this forgiveness, it can be kind of confusing as to why God did it. Like, why would God send his son to die for us? Doesn't it seem a little bit weird that he would plan all of this out to be able to have his son die, to go through all the torment and pain? Like, why would he do this? Why would he, why would he undergo all these different things to be able to bring about our salvation? It seems a little bit confusing or weird. And even here, Paul says that he is in this death, in this forgiveness, he makes known to us the mystery of his will, the, the questions that we have, that according to his purpose, he set forth in Christ a plan for his fullness in time. So when we have questions about, okay, why would God do these things? We may not ever understand, but God does understand. And as we grow closer to him, and as we begin to grow in these things, we'll begin to understand and know it greater. See, the beautiful thing is God does not see time as we see time. God sees time in such a way that is not temporary, that is not fallible. God sees time in a sovereign way. He is not dictated by time. He stands outside of time, and everything that he does, he has set forth a purpose and a plan to be able to bring about the fullness of the gospel's redemption upon all of creation. He is not confused or shocked by anything. See, Jesus' death on the cross was always plan A. It was never plan B, and we rest in that. See, God sees time, the best way that I could kind of illustrate it, and Jesse kind of put this forward to me, and I think it's a very helpful illustration, um, but I am not musically inclined. So it's kind of, it doesn't work well. I shame my mother, who's a piano teacher, in trying to explain this illustration. I'm gonna try to do my best. So uh, the way that God sees time is like the fermata musical symbol in musical notation, okay? God sees time like the fermata. The fermata is a dot, and we're gonna illustrate it here behind me, but the fermata is a dot that has an arc that encircles it. Uh, God is like the dot. He has no beginning, he has no end. He simply is, and he sits outside of time. 
Time is like this arch that goes around the dot. It has a beginning, it has an end, and we are somewhere within this arch, most likely towards the end, but God stands outside of time in his sovereignty. In his goodness, he stands outside of time, not dictated by it, not a servant or slave to it, but he actually rules in authority over it as he sees the full perspective. He can see the beginning, he can see the middle, and he can see the end, no matter where we may be on this timeline. And that's great news, because we have a sovereign God that is not shocked by anything, We have a sovereign God who knows the plan that he has set forward, even when we may not fully understand it. There is a mystery to his will that he is bringing us forward into in the forgiveness of sinners. He has brought us into this ability to see what he is doing and grow further in it. God is sovereign over everything, and his plan of redemption is unfolding before our eyes as he is sovereign over it all. We receive this forgiveness. We receive this ability to sit within the identity of who God is. And we have a sovereign God that we submit our life to. But in this sovereign God, in this ability to have a relationship with him, perfect relationship with him, where we are forgiven and we are united with him, we also are heirs. In Christ, we are heirs. We inherit something that is far greater than anything we can ever imagine. Paul says this, that in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We receive an inheritance. If you have been placed within the family of God, as you are adopted by the family of God, as you have identified yourself within the family of God, you have a future that is eternal and far greater than any temporal thing here on this earth. We inherit God himself. We don't just inherit physical things. We don't just inherit physical, temporal blessings in our life or material possessions. We inherit a God who is eternal, who is always there for us, that is going to always be in relationship with us for all of eternity. Paul says this in Romans chapter eight, verse 14. He says that for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. If you have been brought into the family of God, you inherit a savior that will always be in connection with you, that will be in an intimate relationship with you, in a spiritual connection with you, that will always provide security for you, that will always be there for you, no matter the depths of where you have been. He has secured you throughout all of eternity. We inherit Jesus himself. We inherit the ability to have a relationship with him in which we cry out to him, Father. We inherit God in the future with him. And the last thing that we see here is that not only that, not only do we inherit a relationship with the Father, but there is something else that is at work in the redemption of Christ and the forgiveness of our sins, that in Christ we're not only forgiven, but we're also secured. We're secured, we're sealed. He says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee 
the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We're sealed. That if you are in the family of God, the beautiful truth is that the Holy Spirit has done such a work on your life that you cannot outrun or outdo the work of God's grace and mercy upon your life. You don't need to live in fear that one day you may outpace him. You don't need to live in fear that one day you may outwork him. You don't need to live in fear that one day he will leave or forsake you. He has sealed it, he has guaranteed it, he has given this gift to you and he's never going to take it back. He's promised this to you. And we don't live within sin. We don't live within this guarantee and just do whatever we want. We live with a joyful hope that one day he's gonna come back to redeem all things and that we can live within a savior and a redeemer who will help us as we walk throughout all of life to be able to know him forever and that we can be completely and utterly secured, that we do not need to be afraid of our eternal placement, that he knows us, that he loves us, and that he will never, ever walk away from us. We live within this identity. We live within this truth that God has adopted us into the family of God. And now we go forward in it, not setting our lives within the world around us, but setting our lives within the identity of who Jesus is and what he accomplished on the cross. So the question is, how do we do so? How do we live within this identity? How do we continue to grow in it? I think that we need to be mindful and aware of how our soul or inward being is doing as we are going throughout life. Because we will be tempted at times to begin to hedge our life or found our life upon the world around us and to make ourselves sit upon the things that are in our world and not necessarily Jesus himself. I think that we need to constantly take a diagnostic of our soul to see where we are at and how we are doing in our identity with God. And so I have four different questions that kind of center around each one of these points that I think are important for us to know. Number one, am I looking for the approval from the world around me? Am I looking for the esteem of others? Am I looking for other people to praise me and make me feel okay about it? I must remember that I am chosen. I must remember that I am chosen. Number two, am I attempting to earn God's favor by good works to be able to get his approval by, based upon things that I can do, Bible verses that I can memorize, ways that I attend church, things that I discipline myself to do? Am I looking to earn his favor for my works? I must remember that I am forgiven. He paid the down payment. He did the work on the cross. Now we live forward in that. We do those things because he accomplished it, but we do not use them to earn his favor. Uh, the third question is, am I content in the temporary world around me? Am I content in the things that I have been physically given? Am I pouring my life into all the different things within this world and setting my life upon them? I must remember that I have a future inheritance that is one day coming that is far greater than anything physically within this world. And the last question is, am I worried about the extent of God's love for me? Am I worried that one day he'll leave me? Am I anxious or fearful that he will walk away from me? I must remember that I am secured. We sit within this reality that Christ has identified with us, that he is willing to place his identity upon us. For those of you who are sitting within the family of God, for those of you who would feel this love, who have been adopted by him, welcome home to this family of God. Welcome home. You were loved before time began and you will be loved by your Savior forevermore, forever. 
The beautiful thing is that not only if you sit within the family of God, but if you are outside the family of God, you have been given the ability to be adopted by God himself and brought into this family, into this security, based only upon the work that he has done. And he invites you into it. He has accomplished this work. Welcome home. Once we took Django home uh, from the shelter and we were living with him and he had uh, been in our home, I remember there were so many different moments and so many different times where I began to feel like uh, maybe the down payment that I paid for him wasn't worth it. I paid like 100 bucks for him and I was like, man, I don't know if this down payment was good. I don't know if we should have made this investment. Uh, there'd be moments where every single time that he would uh, eat the bag of M&Ms off the counter, I'd kind of wonder. Every single time that he would uh, do these, just like, he'd bite the mailman, I'd kind of wonder. I'd, every single time that uh, he would bark or every single time he would quickly turn around and kind of do these weird things, I would wonder, was this down payment worth it? Should we have actually spent this money on him? But I remember just sitting there seeing him and every single time he would do it, he'd always look back at me and I would just be enraptured by how much joy he had brought me and how much I cared for him. And there was always a moment where I, I knew I never would leave him. I'd never walk away from him. There's no way, there's no way I'd walk away from him. In the same way, Jesus is not regretting the down payment that he has placed upon your life. He's not sitting there as you walk forward in life, regretting the things that he has done for you. He is not sitting there looking downcast upon you as you walk within your life. He is wanting to grow you. He was wanting to move you closer into his identity, but he invites you into this new life. He does not reject you. He does not push you away. He brings you forward and chases you down to bring you into the family of God. Let us live with this identity. Let us live within this reality as we go throughout our week. Let me pray for us and then we're gonna sing one last song. Lord, I, I thank you for this beautiful reality. I thank you for the ability to, to sit here and read this text and, and see your word. Lord, I, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that maybe is outside of this family but wants to be welcomed in, I pray that you give them the ability to see that you came into the world, that you so loved the world that you came into it to be able to die for us. But we were sinners and we were sinners that were completely lost without you. You gave your life to be able to cover this sin, to be able to forgive us for the things that we had done. And that only through the Father we're able to see you. Only through the Father are we able to walk closer in unison with you. And if we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will give us the ability to walk into new life. So I invite anyone that is feeling as if the Lord is tugging on your heart, Lord, that just walk forward in this reality, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and continue to move into new life. Lord, help us. Help us to walk forward in you. Help us to see you as the good Father you are. Help us to move closer to you. In your name we pray. Amen. I invite everyone to stand. Some of you, for maybe the first time, being able to sing out praises to the Lord in salvation towards him, sitting in his identity. Let us sing together.